Welcome to The Pragmatic Idealist. I'm your host, Mike Brand. This podcast is built on the belief that we don't have to accept the world as it is, and we can work to make it better. I'll be discussing news, political analysis, global issues, and hosting conversations with interesting people and experts in their fields. Thanks for listening. April 15th, 2023, over 1 million people have been forced to flee their homes. Many have been internally displaced in Sudan, while many have fled across the borders to neighboring countries. There are not exact figures, but it is estimated that over 800 people have been killed and over 5,000 people have been injured due to the fighting. The latest fighting comes at the 20-year anniversary of the start of the genocide in Darfur, a region in western Sudan, a crisis that led to the deaths of hundreds of thousands of civilians and over 2.5 million displaced. Now, 20 years later, hundreds of thousands of Sudanese refugees have still not been able to return home. The current crisis and increasing displacement is putting a strain on the already struggling humanitarian situation. To help us make sense of how we got here and discuss where the crisis may be going, I'm so happy to be joined by Sama Salman. Sama is a business executive in Sudan's private sector and the founding member and president of the U.S. Educated Sudanese Association and has been heavily involved in responding to the ongoing crisis in Sudan. Thank you for joining me today. So could you... Oh, sorry. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. And thank you for uh, providing a platform for Sudan. I appreciate it. Of course. Um, so obviously asking you to provide a brief overview is is kind of a, a tough burden, but maybe if you could just give us like the bullet points of what happened since the revolution in 2019 till now. Okay. Those are a lot of bullet points, but I will try. Um, so if I can summarize and maybe we can come back and unpack some of the details later on, but uh, the Sudanese people um, generated one of the most uh, peaceful and uh, successful revolutions in recent history. And that was the revolution that started in December 2018. Um, What happened is that myself being one of the protesters, uh, we as Sudanese went out on the streets on an almost daily basis. Uh, to put pressure on then dictator Omar al-Bashir, who is the notorious uh, dictator who has led Sudan through 30 years of wars and atrocities. And, uh, you know, he basically was the uh, dictator who spearheaded the Darfur civil war. Uh, He continued the South Sudan civil war, and it was under him that Sudan was partitioned Uh, South Sudan was partitioned. Um, In April 2019, enough pressure had been put on Bashir by the protesters that he he was sufficiently weakened to the extent that uh, his right-hand man at the time, General Hemeti, the commander of the Rapid Support Forces, and uh, General Burhan, who was at the the time the Inspector General, uh, of the uh, Sudan Armed Forces um, and a few other uh, generals within the military basically changed the guards one evening in April uh, 2019. Bashir woke up and was taken to prison uh, by these uh, generals who he thought were faithful to him. Um, after that, what happened is uh, actually sort of a, a twist in events because once Generals Burhan and Hemiti uh, had, quote unquote, 
ousted Bashir and carried out was was effect what was effectively a palace coup, they then felt entitled to succeed Bashir in terms of uh, taking power in Sudan. So they created something called the Transitional Sovereign uh, Committee or this uh, Transitional uh, uh, um, Military Council, basically. And what happened there was they uh, created a military council that took over the leadership of Sudan. We as protesters, we continued to protest because we didn't want any military rule, whether that was of Bashir or of his old guard. Um, it so happened that a sit-in protest then formed outside of the military headquarters where you had tens of thousands of Sudanese basically camping out in front of the military headquarters. Um, the Sudanese military had a conundrum on its hands what was it going to do with these protesters who just wouldn't go away? Um, so on one evening in uh, June uh, 2019, they conducted a massacre on these protesters, um, shooting them, burning down tents, uh, dumping bodies in the Nile River, conducting one of the biggest atrocities in Sudanese history. And this time it happened to be in Khartoum, Sudan. Mm -hmm. Um, at, at, by that point, uh, the international community was sort of at a loss of what to do. Here you had this beautiful revolution, and now uh, it was sort of, you know, coming to a point where the country was, was going into a very bloody and, and nightmarish and hellish place. Uh, so they sort of came together and they said, well, let's um, negotiate some sort of a settlement some sort of a settlement between the military that was seeking to retain power and through the civilians who were saying, no, it is our time to take power. Mm -hmm. So in August of 2019, uh, a power sharing agreement was negotiated with the uh, leadership of the AU, EGAD, uh, you know, the UN, the, basically the US, the international community, all of the different mechanisms, you know, the Troika, the, the Quad, and uh, Prime Minister Abdullah Hamdok was um, appointed as the Prime Minister of this transitional government uh, that was to, uh, you know, take Sudan forward to uh, for a period until elections could be held, and uh, that was supposed to be the plan. Yeah, and so they were pushed to creating this transitional, you know, council that included sort of a power sharing between the military and a supposed civilian, you know, figurehead, right? Because Hamdak wasn't elected by the people. So you can't really say he was a civilian authority in that same way as a democratically elected official, but he was yeah. representing the people more or less. Yeah, he was appointed by an entity called the Forces for Freedom and Change, the FFC. And the FFC was the coalition of political parties, grassroots organizations, civil society organizations, and armed rebel movements um, that came together and basically said, okay, we represent the people of Sudan, we represent the civilians of Sudan, and we are the body that has the power 
to appoint uh, the civilian government. So it was that coalition that came together and appointed Hamdok. Mm -hmm. And just to tell people, you know, who a little bit about Hamedi and Burhan, you know, that they don't think that they're, you know, white knights coming to save the day and, you know, toppling a dictator, um, you know, they have lots of blood on their hands as well right. and have a very shady past. Um, so I don't know if you want to highlight any of that before we move on yeah. to today. Well, I mean, so, well, why don't I do, well, I'll tell you what happens next. Okay, you sure. Know, and then we can sort of go back and dig into to their history. So what happens next, you know, there's another twist in events. You know, there's twists and turns all over the place. So what happens next is we think that, of course, um, now that we have this transitional government, comprised of the Sovereign Council, which is a a, um, a council that represents the pre presidency or the head of government, which is, a, a, you know, a 50-50, um, uh, it's, a, it's a council where the military represents 50% of the seats and the civilians represent 50% of the seats. And General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, who is the commander of the Sudanese Armed Forces, is the head of the council. Mm -hmm. So he effectively has the seat of the presidency of Sudan. Um, to balance that out, the prime minister, uh, Prime Minister Abdullah Hamdok, was appointed by the freedom, the forces for freedom of change. So he effectively represents the civilians. And so you have that structure of a government, of a transitional government, that's supposed to be reflective of the power sharing agreement that will take Sudan forward until uh, for the transitional period until uh, elections um, uh, take place. So what happens next is that uh, the transitional government goes forward for the next two and a half years. And lo and behold, in October 2021, the generals have decided that enough is enough and that actually they will carry out a coup d'etat. They, they do that in October on October 25th, 2021, and completely unseat um, Prime Minister Abdullah Hamdok, effectively shifting it to a military uh, autocratic government once again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, that, like you said, was just a short period of time between when the initial coup over Bashir happened in 2019 till yeah. 2021. So there wasn't even enough time to actually get the transitional government off the ground, actually pave a way towards elections and everything else. Um, okay, so they they throw Hamdak out, they arrest him and a few others, right? Yeah. Um, and then what? Well, then basically you have a vacuum where uh, Burhan and his vice chair of the Sovereign Council, who is General Hemeti, who is the commander of the Rapid Support Forces, they're now in charge and they've carried out this coup jointly. And so they have to figure out a way to sort of form a government and appoint a prime minister. So they look around and, um, you know, they find a few... Islamists of the uh, old guard of Omar al-Bashir's regime, and they try to appoint them, but people go out into the street and protest, and so they have a problem on their hands. Who can they appoint as prime minister who will be acceptable enough that the people won't go out protesting every day, and uh, at the same time will actually carry out their orders? And there's nomination after nomination, 
and they just can't seem to find the person who will take the job. Or if the person takes the job, it's only a matter of days before, you know, enough protesters go out on the street to express their disapproval. Now, mind you, the protesters are still going out on the streets to express their disapproval of the coup itself. So you have paralysis in Sudan at this stage where it's just protest after protest two, three times a week. And at this point in time, people aren't even really focused on their livelihoods anymore. They're now just focused on getting rid of Burhan and Bashir. But you have a stalemate at this point because you know the military has the advantage of its might and sort of prowess and and military equipment and hardware and 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 the fact that it shoots protesters out on the streets so now we're still losing you know uh 10 15 protesters every every month um so the international community is looking at this and saying okay this can't go on they come back for another round of negotiations this time it's called the framework agreement and in december 2022 after this has gone on for long enough um you know, they they bring again the same parties to the negotiating table, which are the generals, the forces for freedom of change that re represent the civilian faction, and the international community says, okay, we need to have a way of handing power over to the civilians, which was the original plan, mm -hmm. and um, you know, this framework agreement is signed by all the parties. Now, at that time, people like myself are looking at this and thinking you know, these two generals, they're definitely coming to the negotiating uh, table in bad faith. Mm -hmm. And looking at their track record, they've never stuck to an agreement. So they're probably signing this just to sort of ward off like all this pressure that's coming from the international community, and they'll just go back to business. So and there's no trust, the, the civilians just had no trust that they were going to do the right thing. Not, absolutely not, there's zero trust. They're, and at the same time, the international community seems to be committed to this agreement because they're thinking enough blood has been shed, enough lives have been lost, Sudan is, has been destabilized enough, we need to get some sense of stability and order back to the country. And that, while in itself is not a bad intent, it sort of misreads you know, the tea leaves. And it, it really also is, is surprising because when you look at the track record of these generals, they really don't have any credibility. Mm -hmm. So how the international community sort of came to think that this framework agreement would stick is sort of beyond me and people like me who could read the situation. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the agreement is signed and uh, that is, that's the draft agreement. And then when it comes time to sign the final agreement and we're getting closer to that, that's when war breaks out. And in between all this, like even going back to 2018, I think it's worth mentioning that all of these protests that you keep talking about in Khartoum were nonviolent. They were, you know, civilian led. It wasn't like there were clashes in the streets between the civilians and the authorities in a violent way, except for the fact from the authorities to the civilians. They were clearly being targeted. People were being beaten, as you said, shot and killed, arrested, etc. Um, but it wasn't like a civil war between the civilian faction and the, you know, sort of old guard in Burhan and Hamedi. 
No, you're absolutely right, Mike. And that's such a great point because it was completely nonviolent. And that was the strategy of the protesters. I mean, it was a deliberate strategy because there had been debates, you know, in public forums about, you know, our protesters are being killed. Why don't we take arms and fight back? But then the general wisdom was, okay, you can't fight the military. You're going to lose. And if you do that, you automatically become like a, a rebel armed movement and you will be at war with the government and that's not what you want that's not going to help you attain your goals it's going to be counterproductive so keep it nonviolent. and and that was the strategy and the other part of the strategy was to use um uh you know the the um sit-ins so people mm -hmm. would stay at home not go to work and and you know not use public transport and not use you know the public um services in sort of an attempt to also shut the government down. So it was a combination of those two tools that really it, it, it's, it's what challenged the government and what gave the protesters their strength. Mm -hmm. And then so getting to April of this year, um, as you were saying, they started to get to this place of final implementation of the last the latest round of new negotiations. And then all hell breaks loose. And then all hell breaks loose. Um, so there are several controversial clauses in the framework agreement. And the most important one is the one around security sector reform. Mm -hmm. And that clause says that the rapid support forces, the RSF of General Hemeti, should be integrated into the Sudanese armed forces because the RSF is basically a paramilitary um, group. Uh, it is not the regular army. So the agreement said that the RSF should be folded back into the regular army. Now, Hemiti, General Hemiti, who's been his own boss, who's accumulative, accumulated a huge amount of power, social capital, uh, an entire you know, economic empire, at this stage, he's not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. You know, he has his own ambitions and his own designs. So this is the sort of genie that's come out of the bottle that's not going back in. Yeah. And so uh, backing up a little bit to the history, the, the Janjaweed that many people may remember, you know, who committed a lot of the atrocities in Darfur became eventually in some ways the RSF. And as you're saying, Hameti and, you know, some of his forces you know, when people hear a paramilitary, sometimes you think, you know, like a ragtag group of people that have a few guns and, you know, they're able to cause a little bit of chaos. The RSF is very highly funded, very highly armed. And they're, by many estimates, pretty much on par in strength and power to the official Sudanese armed forces, with the exception of air support, right? The, the SAF has, you know, attack helicopters and planes and things like that, the RSF, not so much, but otherwise they, they have a lot of the same, you know, power and arms that the actual armed forces do. Oh, exactly. You, you're, that's exactly it. You've hit the nail on the head and the Genjuid evolved in a way um, where they started off as a very small militia led by uh, Hemeti, who was basically a camel trader. Mm -hmm. And uh, Bashir had tapped him as one of the uh, militia leaders who could help him suppress 
the quote-unquote rebellion in Darfur in 2003, and that was at the start of the Darfur Civil War. And so basically what was happening is that you had, you know, marginalized groups, marginalized Sudanese in Darfur, Sudan, were basically taking up arms against the government and al-Bashir thought, you know, I'm going to suppress them, I'm going to clamp down on them and that'll be the end of that. Well, he sent the Sudanese armed forces and unfortunately they were not as familiar with the terrain in Darfur and weren't unable to really, you know, deal with these, um, uh, deal with this rebellion. So Bashir started to hire out militias familiar with the Darfur and who came from Darfur tribes. And so Hemeti was one of them. Now Hemeti was so skilled and so good at, you know, doing what he did that he eventually rose to the, to the, the ranks. Bashir became enamored with him, gave him, you know, sort of blank check facilities, power, uh, just as long as he was doing his job. Mm-hmm. And that continued for a couple of years. And Hemeti continued to build up his forces until he had, you know, 20,000 and then 30,000 men. And at that point, um, you know, Bashir was also thinking, Sudan is a country of coups. I came into power through a coup. Uh, He also started to feel a little bit threatened by, you know, some of his, some of his generals feeling a little bit insecure. So Hemeti became sort of his, now became his private army. And this is where, you know, this Frankenstein, this this sort of monster is born. It's a creation of Omar al-Bashir. Mm-hmm. And in 2015, Omar al-Bashir actually puts into law um, a law that says that the Janjaweed has now officially become something called the RSF, the Rapid Support Forces. So he formalizes them. So they're no longer this ragtag sort of um, paramilitary, and they report directly into him. They don't report it into the Sudanese armed forces. And so it's at this stage that they become a legitimate entity. And it's after Bashir is ousted from power that there's a series of events where they continue to gain political capital and financial um, um, resources that we can get into as well to sort of explain how they grow so big. And before we get there, you know, you were saying that the part of the negotiations in this framework, the, the one of the, the controversial pieces was this, you know, agreement to have the RSF integrate into the SAF. And I think it's it's worth highlighting, you know, the, some of the, the biggest issues that happen in these transitions from, you know, either dictatorship or military rule, you know, or civil war to, you know, some form of democratization security sector reform and the rapid democratization, you know, the rush to get elections, the rush to have, you know, a more democratic society tend to be two big risk factors for further conflict. And in Sudan, that's what we saw, right? You see the the two generals, one who's saying, hey, you, you need to integrate with our forces that we could all be under, you know, one command. The other is saying, not so fast, we need more time, we want a few more years, because Hamedi, as you said, is making money. He doesn't, you know, he has power. He doesn't want us to come to somebody else's leadership. And really, neither man wants to allow for civilian control because then they have a boss again and they want to be their own boss. And so also, as you said, the country has, I mean, there's been elections in Sudan, but the country really hasn't had free and fair elections for 30 plus years because Bashir was in power and before Bashir. So 
this idea of, okay, we have this sort of coup, we have another coup, we have another coup, but these same generals are in charge. The civilian authorities are trying to push back and say that they want civilian control. The reality to your question earlier of why did the international community put faith in, you know, Burhan and Hamedi, it's, it's this unfortunate reality of the men with the guns get to call the shots. And that's, you know, unfortunately, one of those stories that plays out in far too many places where um, it's just the unfortunate reality where they're able to control the narrative to some degree, because as they did in April 2019, they can pull the entire country into war. Absolutely. 100%. And that is also part of the reason why I think there weren't punitive measures you know, um, applied earlier by the international mm -hmm. community. So I think what happened is is exactly like you said, in October 2021, when Burhan and Hemeti carried out, carried out the coup against the transitional government, um, you know, there were um, all sorts of proposals around U.S. targeted sanctions, mm -hmm. and that came out of the U.S. Congress. But um, even though they were passed by Congress and, you know, moved over to uh, the State Department and the White House, nobody could really press the button on them because the thought was always, well, you know, we don't want to push the situation into a more volatile situation where the country then goes into war. Um, so it was already a very fragile situation. And I think members of the international community were looking at it and, and thinking, let's try for stability as opposed to pushing too hard for a democratic transition that might actually end up in war but this is actually where we where we do end up yeah and i think it's worth noting you know back in 2018 and early 2019 some of the conversations that were happening here in dc amongst the you know folks in the policy community within the u.s government we're looking at the protests in Sudan, which, you know, originally, at least the narrative is that they started over, you know, protests over the price of bread and increasing inflation and things like that as, oh, this is going to be short lived and, you know, we can't really support it. We, we support the people, but we can't really push too hard because Bashir, as bad as he is, is a stabilizing force in the region. And this, you know, perpetuating narrative of the big men that maybe do terrible things are possibly better than if there's a power vacuum and a war. It's this ongoing debate and you don't really have a great answer for it. Although I don't, I personally don't think anytime we should be supporting genocidaires anywhere, regardless of whom they are. Um, but that kind of led to, as you were saying, this like paralysis over actions early on and then even after. And so now we get to a point where just recently, the, the two sides were brought to Jeddah for talks, you know, in hopes that they could come to a ceasefire. And nobody was looking at, you know, a cessation of hostilities agreement. Nobody was looking at a permanent ceasefire. It was always the conversation about a temporary ceasefire just to be able to bring some humanitarian aid to some of the most desperate people inside of Khartoum and elsewhere. And the lead up to the first ceasefire, there was constant fighting on both sides. The ceasefire had initial breaks where it was the funniest thing seeing all these messages online of, you know, it's an imperfect ceasefire, which means it's not a ceasefire if people are still fighting. Yeah. And then now just this week, 
you know, we hear that the SAF is fully left out of there. They're done with the talks They're You know, it's over. Um, so even the very little bit that, you know, we saw come out of that as a positive and that some humanitarian aid was able to get through now it's over. And frankly, this is the situation that I'm in. I don't know what comes next. And so I'm curious what your thoughts are. No one knows what comes next, but what we've also seen just this morning is the U.S. government pressed the button on the targeted sanctions and mm -hmm. sanctioned four uh, entities, two on the side of the Sudanese Armed Forces and two on the side of the RSF. So this is actually an interesting experiment where the accountability uh, mechanisms are now actually being implemented. Uh, and we need to see what how that's going to play out. Now, there's a level of impunity on the side of both these generals. So mm -hmm. how they respond, you know, I, I, th there's different scenarios for how they could respond. They're definitely not happy and they're definitely very apprehensive. Um, the other part of the sanctions framework strategy is that sanctions are about freezing assets so that Burhan and Hemeti can't really get a hold of those assets and can't use them to buy uh, weapons or smuggle weapons back into the country. A lot of the assets held by the SAF and the RSF are actually not connected to the United States anymore. Mm -hmm. Let's remember that Sudan has been under comprehensive sanctions uh, from 97 to 2017. That's 20 years, basically. And what happened during that period is that there was a fundamental shift where Sudan was forced out of the international banking system and started using alternative channels. Um, so they started doing their banking in Turkey and China and Malaysia and the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia and some of the other Gulf countries. So now you'll see a lot of these assets and financial flows are actually tied up with the Gulf. Mm -hmm. And I've often been a promoter, uh, a proponent of the view that if you want targeted sanctions to work, you need some of these allies in the Gulf, whether it be the United Arab Emirates or Saudi Arabia, to come on board the sanctions framework. Otherwise, they're not as effective as they should be. Yeah, no, it's a great point. I think so often we hear the term sanctions used, especially because the U.S. government loves to talk about it as seemingly one of the only tools that we have in the toolkit to address, you know, bad actors. Um, and there's a lot of research out there that shows that sanctions don't really have a great track record of stopping, you know, violent conflicts and mass atrocity situations, unfortunately. And part of the reason, as you said, is that there's only so much that U.S. sanctions alone can do. Um, and so I think it's a great point about the Gulf countries. You know, the UAE and Saudi Arabia have been involved in some of these talks, in some of the pressure, in collaboration with the United States. Um, so why wouldn't they want to cut off ties? Why wouldn't they want to, you know, seize their assets, especially if those assets are, you know, in their country? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of like, you know, basic, you know, finance or accounting 101. When you've got lots of assets, you know, in your country, that's a good thing. You don't want to get rid of assets. Um, so your economy benefits from those financial flows. And whether those are resources like gold coming in from Sudan or, um, you know, the the bank accounts of these of these companies. I mean, this is good for any economy. So um, the the Gulf countries, they don't have the incentives uh, 
-hmm. to freeze those assets. I, I think it's just really that simple. And um, I think that because they all, they're also very substantive, uh, substantive assets. And the, the Gulf countries have also had a different view of Sudan and the type of leadership they'd like to see in Sudan. So the Gulf countries are not so much about you know, promoting necessarily civilian rule in Sudan. Um, you know, the Gulf countries made of 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 uh, monarchies, and mm -hmm. some would say autocratic monarchies. And so, they would probably want to see rule that is a reflection of of their own governments in in countries like Sudan. So, you've got you know. Uh, military generals like el-sisi in egypt mm -hmm. who is backed by the gulf states and backed by the us and backed by the european union and so it's models of leadership like that that have often been supported uh by the the gulf countries and so it, for them they see sudan as a food basket as a place where they can uh secure their food security needs you know, buy into large agricultural uh, schemes and farms and export back those agricultural commodities back into their countries. And so for them, Sudan is more about uh, food security and commercial opportunity than it is necessarily about working towards some sort of civilian um, uh, transition. And they may not want to see, you know, those sorts of challenges mm -hmm. to uh, governments that could then carry over into their own neighborhoods. Yeah. And there's a lot of, you know, shady things as well, right? There's the more official channels, as you're saying, of food trade and potentially even oil trade and things like that. And then there's the sort of under the table, illicit gold trades, you know, gold for arms and gold for just, you know, cash, um, the relationship that Saudi Arabia and you have had with um, both sides of the conflict, actually, in support of the war in Yemen, you know, exactly. having RSF forces and SAF forces actually going to fight in Yemen, adding to the force there. And as you said, in Egypt, you know, um, I don't have a, I'll put a map up maybe, you know, after, but, you know, the, the Nile running right through, there's a lot of Nile politics, as they say, you know, oh, between yeah. those countries. And so, um, you know, having a friendly government in Sudan that, you know, the Egyptians can actually work with on, you know, managing the Nile River, which is a huge source of water for many countries, not just those two, um, is a big piece of the puzzle as well. Oh, absolutely. The GERD, the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam in Ethiopia, I mean, that's another hot spot where you've got uh, negotiations that have been facilitated by the U.S. and and other entities between Ethiopia, Sudan, and Egypt because of this tension between Egypt and Ethiopia around, you know, who has sort of the rights to determine um, how the Nile waters are are managed, and um, you know, you even have a special envoy, a U.S. special envoy to the Horn of Africa whose remit right now is Ethiopia and the GERD. So that tells you how controversial and how uh, challenging some of these issues are to manage within you know, the Horn of Africa in general. Yeah, no, that's, that's important. Um, so you know, here we are, it's you know, a, a month and a little bit since the fighting first broke out. Um, it seems as though the, the worst of the fighting you know, was towards the beginning 
And even though the ceasefire has, has broken down, um, there hasn't been, it, it's hard to put a, a name to this, but I don't want to say it's broken down into full scale civil war, not yet at least. It's bad. It's been very bad. There's lots of displacement. There's, as we talked about before, um, hundreds of people have been killed, um, many injured. Um, but it doesn't seem like both either side is willing to yet go to the level of full scale war. Um, and I'm just curious, you know, where do you think things are going to happen? Because this is the challenge that we have when you have the big men with guns. If they don't think that this can get negotiated out in any way, not just you know in Jeddah with these ceasefire talks, but in any way possible, then they're going to fight it out. And at the end of the day, the civilians in the middle are the ones who are going to pay the the price. Well, that's a really uh, important point because uh, about four days ago, General Burhan of the Sudanese Armed Forces actually called on retired generals and retired military men and called on the general population to take arms in support mm. of the Sudanese armed forces. And that's really dangerous because what he's saying is that this has now become, you know, this is this is a war that is not just about the security forces, but he's calling on the general population to become um, a part of the war. And Hemiti at the same time, he's been known to recruit uh, out of the entire Sahel region. So while he is um, from Darfur, and he, he actually originates from Chad. So Hibiti mm. was born in Chad and came at a very young age uh, to Darfur. That, the way that that is um, looked at, there are a lot of common tribes between West Sudan and Chad. So you have sort of these extended families and extended tribes overlapping between mm -hmm. Sudan and Chad. So you've got Hemiti with this natural recruiting base from West Sudan into Chad, into Mali and Niger and Northern Nigeria and Mauritania all across the Sahel. And that's one of the reasons he's so e easily able to recruit. And he now has forces that at some counts are at 150,000 men, some say even 200,000. He has a sort of unlimited recruiting base. And the reason he he's able to recruit so easily is because he has huge access to financial resources. During Bashir's reign, Bashir actually awarded him a whole gold mine, one of the biggest gold mines in Darfur, Sudan. So he owns a gold mine. He actually operates like a state within a state. I mean, that's sort of how crazy this situation has gone with Bashir sort of rewarding Hemiti to help Bashir keep his grip on power. So Hemiti becomes like Bashir's, you know, sort of right-hand man over mm -hmm. time. Yeah. And given the the recruiting base, you know, from Hemeti and the ability for Burhan, you know, because it's not like Burhan doesn't have access to resources as well. Um, that's what's you know kind of terrifying is that we could see this becoming a multi-year potentially multi-decade protracted conflict where neither side is able to fully win and there's ongoing violence maybe fits and spurts of you know high, high level low level violence um but in the meantime the challenge that you have is you have a failed state that isn't able to provide basic you know human needs for the people and all too often, and I, I talk about this with the students in, in my classes, you have this very tough challenge where 
these crises that are able to become protracted while the you know leaders supposed leaders of a country don't care about their people the international community and the humanitarian community ends up footing the bill for basic needs water food you know wash healthcare etc and you know it's not just international big donors like USAID or like DFID it's also you know Sudanese and diaspora that are helping to send money back home to ensure that you know there's stocks in in the hospitals and things like that um but all the while it allows the leaders to say oh well we don't have to worry about this stuff because everybody else is going to pay for it we could just buy more guns yeah and so it's like it's a really horrible position and like i don't think i can't remember a time when the international community has made the decision to just like walk away and be like all right well you know what Let, let's just let them fight it out um but there are some who argue like that's the only way something like this actually comes to an end is if one side just beats the other. Yeah, I mean, the, the complicating factor in this is though there's a third party to this war, which is sort of like an invisible uh, party that's stirring the pot, which is there's an Islamist militia that is called, um, it's basically, uh, they're the relics, they're the um, remnants of the NCP, which is the National Congress Party of Omar al-Bashir. And when the transitional um, government took over and Bashir was jailed, so remember after, so back to April 2019, there's a palace coup where Burhan Hamiti, you know, changed the palace guards and, and take Omar al-Bashir away to prison. And they take some of his cronies with them to prison as well. And some of Bashir's prison, uh, brothers, you know, flee to Turkey and Salah Ghosh, who is the former chief of national intelligence and security services, he flees to Egypt. And so you have some of Bashir's um, uh, uh, old uh, party, you know- um, Inner circle. This inner circle, exactly. They're in prison with him and the rest have fled the country. Mm -hmm. So what's what's happened is that they had their own militias. They had their own Islamist militant um, army. And that army had always been sort of a reserve army when they thought they would need it. And that army went underground during this period. But there were pronouncements from them that they would come back and make right uh basically get revenge on the revolution and the revolutionaries and that they would ultimately come back to power so they've been biding their time waiting for the right time when they could come back and bring al-bashir or al-bashir's you know successor back into power and so there are reports that it's actually the islamist militias of bashir that fired the sh first shots in the april mm -hmm. 15th war. So we don't really know who fired the first shots, but there are high-level Islamists who've come out and made statements and said that uh, we will come back into power and we are going to win this war and that you know, we know that there are many uh, members of the NCP that are also embedded in the Sudanese armed forces. So there's an extent to where General Burhan has control of his army, but he doesn't necessarily have control of these Islamist rogue militias that are fighting on his side, which mm -hmm. is, you know, another layer of chaos to add on to this. Yeah, it, it's 
it's such a mess. And in so many ways, you know, the, the fact that it seems as though out of all those different groups that are, you know, willing to, you know, fight to the death for control of Sudan, they're doing it for greed and power, right? Like, it's not as if one of these groups has the best interests of the Sudanese people at heart. Oh, it's all about power. It's all about power and political control. And if you go back to Sudan's history, just for context, Sudan gained independence uh, from the British in uh 1956 so sudan's been independent for 67 years 53 of those years have been ruled by autocrats mm -hmm. or dictators and they have and that has been a combination of you've had a you have a military general who takes power and he is backed by one of the political parties and so it's been coup after coup after coup interspersed by periods of you know, revolution and civilian transitional governments, and then you get a coup d'etat again. Sudan actually has the highest number of military coups in Africa and in the world. Wow. It's had 18 attempted coups, and uh, 12 of them have actually succeeded. So Sudan, Sudan is a master of military coups. Mm -hmm. That's how we uh, transition power in Sudan. It's via military coups. And so you have this mili this mili politicized, you know, military that they, for them, it's etched in their minds that they are the ones who are supposed to succeed in terms of succeeding Omar al-Bashir. So it, it's actually the revolutionaries who are fighting in the uphill bat battle, mm -hmm. but there it's for them. It's sort of the default button that there's going to be another military ruler. So who is it going to be? Is it going to be Burhan or is it going to be Hamiti? And this is the first time that the coups haven't come from within the military where you have a paramilitary leader or a private army general, like, um, Hemiti come from outside of the military establishment and challenge power. That's unusual in yeah. Sudan. And so how do you see this ending? Like if we future cast, you know, into a few weeks, months, sadly, potentially years from now, you know, does the international community just decide to pick a side and prop up one over the other? Do, does one side fight each other and they win? Because, you know, so often we we try to talk about, you know, civilian transition, democratization, you know, all of these things, which in theory are great, but at when push comes to shove in the real world, that it's not so simple. And it doesn't just happen overnight. You can't go from, as you said, you know, 30 plus years of dictatorship under one man, you know, and then other dictators before that, straight to democracy and expect that to just work. Um, so yeah, I'm just curious what you think, you know, happens next. Yeah, it, so it's really tough because there are also so many international and regional actors mm -hmm. that have a stake in what happens in Sudan. And so look, when you look at the neighboring countries, they have their own incentives and motives. When you look at countries- And problems. And problems, exactly. And when you look at countries like Russia, I mean, they're intervening. There, there's a whole list of countries that are also inter interfering in, in the war in Sudan. When you look at who is backing who, you'll see also that the way that Hamiti continued to build up his power. So after um, Bashir, you know, was ousted, uh, Hamiti, uh, 
I'm sorry, before Bashir was ousted, there was a period where Hamiti was actually contracted out by the European Union to patrol the borders and close them off from migrants. Mm -hmm. And that was a deal that paid Hamiti hundreds of millions when it was um, brought to light by um, the international media. It was a huge embarrassment to the European Union. And, um, you know, that ended quickly once it was exposed. And so he was given credibility at a certain point by the European Union. Uh, he was then um, he was then hired by the Saudis and the uh, Emiratis to help fight the war in Yemen. So they hired his men and his troops to and his child soldiers to fight at the front lines of the war in Yemen. He made billions of dollars there. Um, uh, more recently, he has deals with the Russian Wagner Group, where the Wagner Group has stakes in gold mines in Darfur, and they smuggle gold out through Dubai onto planes to Russia. And in return, Himiti gets stockpiles of weapons and mm -hmm. surface-to-air missiles. And, and so, the, the Wagner Group, for anybody who doesn't know, is this like Russia, you know, mercenary group basically that's quasi-governmental in control, but you know, sort of separate. And they're operating in many countries around in Africa. Africa, and in some of the neighbor countries like uh, Mali mm -hmm. and uh, you know, Central African Republic and Chad. And so what you see is weapons being smuggled in, possibly, and we don't have verification of this. I mean, there have just been reports the Libyan border or through uh, Central African Republic. And that's why a couple of days ago, actually, uh, the U.S. and the European Union expanded the Russian-Ukraine war sanctions on the Wagner Group in Mali because it was uh, thought to be that Mali was fueling the war, was providing weapons uh, to uh, Sudan. Mm -hmm. And so the Wagner Group and certain oligarchs are list. There's a list of oligarchs and uh, Russian entities that are sanctioned. Uh, and so Wagner Group in Mali was also sanctioned recently. So that tells you also how tied up this is with what's happening in terms of the war in Ukraine. Because if you see some of these gold flows, smuggled gold goes to Russia, helps to buffer the Russian treasury and then helps to fund the Russian war in Ukraine. So this is in a very sort of fascinating and scary way, all linked up, you know, mm -hmm. from Africa all the way through to the war in Ukraine. So in a very strange way, the war in Sudan and the war in Ukraine are very directly linked. Yeah. How this plays out, you know, it really depends on the political will and appetite of the international community. There needs to to be a huge amount of pressure mm -hmm. that comes down on the two belligerents by a coalition of you know, the UN and the European Union and the US and the, the, the Saudis and the Gulf partners. So right now you have talks that are being brokered by a Saudi US um, uh, team. And my understanding is that they're working to broaden that coalition and it needs to include the AU and EGAD and mm -hmm. all of these you know, expanded mechanisms in order for it to really be effective. Because once you get the entire international community on board, that's where you can get the real pressure 
to yeah. weigh down on these generals. And, you know, then you can go to the UN Security Council and say, look, we need to expand the UN arms embargo. We need to seriously implement it and we need a no-fly zone. And, you know, those are the sorts of things that can bring real pressure on the generals. And then you've got the sanctions frameworks, these targeted sanctions and, you know, asset freezing. Um, those are really the only tools and mechanisms that you have to try to end the war. Mm -hmm. um, otherwise, it's it's very difficult with these yeah. two generals yeah. who have these sorts of motivations to cling on to power. Yeah, and as you said, in, until some of those other actors are willing to step up with the pressure, it's going to be difficult for the U.S., the EU, you know, U.K., Norway, etc., to by themselves sanction some of these, you know, assets or sanction some of these leaders or their, you know, companies that they have. Because exactly. um, no one's going to do it alone. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's the kind of thing where, as you said, you know, they're only in this for power and money. And so if you can cut off, you know, the, the money train, at least, then they can realize, OK, well, going forward in this way is not going to benefit me anymore. Um, if, you know, Hamedi can't get his gold out, you know, through certain channels and, and then even if he does get it out, he's not able to get money back for it because he can't get the money, you know, unless somebody's handing him a wad of cash. So exactly. you know, that's one of those those key provisions. And then the, the last thing I'll say, and then, I, you know, probably wrap up, but, um, you know, Sudan is one of those countries, as I've heard you talk about, you know, before, that has had a history of impunity and cycles of violence and cycles yeah. of conflict over the years. And it's just a great example of what happens when you allow individuals to continue to, you know, not face accountability for their crimes, because as we mentioned, you know, Hemeti is, you know, responsible for countless crimes in the Darfur region. Burhan is, you know, responsible for countless crimes. Bashir, you know, even though he was arrested, he wasn't arrested for those crimes. He was arrested for other things. And he hasn't gone to The Hague yet to face charges at the ICC. Um, other members of his inner circle, as you said, who fled the country are free. They're not, you know, Salagosh isn't under, you know, house arrest or something like that. Um, and so I think that's one of those things that if we can get to a place where the fighting does stop and we can get to some kind of a transition, this also is one of those challenges where you do need accountability for the violence and the crimes that have happened. However, you also need the violence and the crimes that are happening right now to stop. And so it's difficult to try to say to these guys, hey, as soon as the violence stops, we're going to arrest you and charge you. Exactly, exactly. And you, you've hit the nail right on the head. And that's why some of these strategies, tactically, they become really complicated. Because, you know, if you listen to um, some of the folks over at the US Department of State, for example, they know that, you know, uh, they've got targeted sanctions in their toolbox or at the European Union, you know, or at the UN. But at the same time, you've got two warring parties. And do you want to, you know, sort of uh, antagonize them further if you pull out these sort of um, tools or or do you say, all right, well, we're going to clamp down and that's it. So it's it's a it's a very delicate mm -hmm. uh, balancing act. It's 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 not as easy as it might look on paper. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking with me today. Um, unfortunately, as with so many of these situations, no easy answers, because if there were, you know, somebody would have come up with them. Um, but I'm sure 
well, you know, you're on the circuit, as we were talking about before we started recording, you're, you're doing a lot of different things. I'll link to a few um, other interviews that you've been doing. And, you know, thank you for everything you're doing. And I know so many um, here, you know, Sudanese that are here in the States are doing a lot of great work trying to raise awareness about this and trying to engage um, with their individual members of Congress, with the State Department, with USAID, with the, you know, the Biden administration. Um, and I think, it, you know, early on in this conflict, there was some coverage of what was going on in Sudan, and a lot of it was focused on getting Americans out. And now that's kind of died down. And I just think it's so important that we keep Sudan in front of mind for, you know, the media, for the, the administration, for members of Congress, because the problems aren't going to go away, and we need to be paying attention to what's happening. No, thank you, Mike. And thank you so much for giving Sudan a platform. Like you said, you know, the media attention goes in waves and it's and it's up and down. And it's so important to keep Sudan, you know, front and center. So I really appreciate the fact that you've made this time and uh, to speak to me. Thank you.